The uh, title of the Bible study tonight, uh, I think, will take me a little bit of an introduction to explain, but it's called Preaching to Greeks. Preaching to Greeks. And we begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, from verse 17 down to verse 24. And just to give a little variety, I'm using the New King James tonight. 1 Corinthians 1, from 17 to 24. Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, I think we all understand that our greatest calling, our greatest purpose as Christians on this earth is to be salt, to be light, and to both live, manifest, and preach the good news of the gospel to all of creation. And this passage has really been capturing my thoughts for some time now because Paul makes a clear distinction between Jews and Greeks. And some of your Bibles may translate Greeks, Gentiles. Uh, interestingly enough, the New Testament is written in Greek, and the original word for Greek is the Greek word Helen, H-E-L-L-E-N, from which we get words like Hellenistic that refer specifically to Greek culture. So it, it really is literally Jews and Greeks. And he says there's a distinction between these two groups, a very great distinction both in their culture their view of God and the way in which we should be presenting the gospel to them. And he also indicates that their response or their reaction to the message of the cross and Christ 
is very different. And just to reiterate, he says, Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom. When Christ crucified is preached to the Jews, that message is a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, it's foolishness. And I would like to suggest tonight that depending on our audience, the way in which we present Christ and the gospel can be very different. It's not that the message is any different, but the way in which we present the message, I think, depends upon our ability to discern our audience. Who exactly are we preaching to? Who exactly are we trying to present Christ to? And I may be oversimplifying this, but one of the things that I see is the Jews, they already know about God. You don't have to convince them that there is a God and that he's the God of the scriptures. They have the scriptures. They have the prophets. Uh, what unites them as a people is their belief in the God of Genesis, the creator God, the covenant God. Greeks, on the other hand, represent an agnostic or an atheistic culture that's basically secular in nature, and as it mentions here in verse 22, their primary interest is in seeking after wisdom. Their, their, their culture represents intellectual pursuits, the pursuit of knowledge and, and wisdom. And of course, the Greeks are well known for that. The great philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, all Greeks representing this quest for, for knowledge and for wisdom. Whereas the Jews, their whole culture centered around God. Now that's not to say that they worshipped God perfectly or followed God or even had a real living faith in God, but their whole existence was born out of a revelation of God, the Creator. Now, I may be getting a little ahead of myself, but we're basically living in a culture here in the U.S. and in many of the Western nations that's much more like the Greek culture. It's atheistic, it's agnostic in nature, it's very secular, very materialistic, uh, there's a general denial of the Bible even being the authoritative word of God, etc., etc. So, we are definitely not living in a Jewish kind of a culture. We're living in a culture that's much more like that of the Greeks. Now, I want to look at two models of evangelism that are often 
taught in discipleship classes, and the first one is found in Acts chapter 2, and the Acts chapter 2 model of evangelism has, by and large, been the main model adopted by churches and Christians as the way to evangelize. And we'll look at it briefly, and I would like to suggest tonight that this model may not necessarily work in a culture like the one that we have now in the U.S. and in other Western nations that have become extremely secularized, where God is no longer taught in the schools, where prayer, Bible reading is no longer embraced, and more and more we're seeing a generation coming up in countries like the U.S. where there's an alarming ignorance, even of basic biblical facts and knowledge. And we cannot assume that our audience knows those things. All right, let's go to Acts chapter 2 briefly. And as you know, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out. And the 120 in the upper room were all baptized with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues. And this was noised abroad throughout Jerusalem. And people came from all over the city to find out what was happening. And some of them were saying, you know, these men are drunk. It's only 9 a.m. in the morning. Uh, What's going on? And from Acts 2 verse 14, we see how Peter was the spokesman who stood up and gave a response to their questions. And starting in verse 16, we we see that Peter immediately begins to quote Scripture. He doesn't try to go into a long explanation about how God is the creator of the universe, the Bible is the authoritative word of God. He didn't need to do all that because he's preaching to a Jewish audience who already knows about God. They already know that the scriptures are the revealed authoritative word of that God. And so in verse 16, he goes right to the book of Joel. And he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, etc., etc. And he keeps quoting from Joel chapter 2 all the way down to verse 21. And you can read that on your own. We're going to skip over that. And so after this long portion of scripture is quoted, finally in verse 22, he addresses them. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you 
by miracles. Notice again, he doesn't even have to explain who God is. They know who God is. All he's presenting to them is Jesus, the man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified him, put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Notice again, he frequently and freely refers to God, and he doesn't have to qualify which God he's talking about. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they all know who he's talking about. So he doesn't need to define terms like God. They already know God. He doesn't have to give them a long uh, defense on why the Bible is the Word of God. He just immediately begins quoting scriptures, first from the book of Joel, and then, starting in verse 25, he continues quoting scriptures, now from Psalm 16. For David says concerning him, and he quotes, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. And he continues quoting from Psalm 16, down through verse 28. And we're going to skip over that. And then in verse 29, he addresses the audience again. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. He doesn't have to defend the truth about David. They knew who David was. Let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, and he's quoting again, now from Psalm 110, the scriptures, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know. Notice, he knows his audience. He's preaching to Jews in Jerusalem. This is a Jewish audience, and it's a message tailored for the Jews. Let all the house of Israel know, assuredly, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They're feeling conviction. 
This message is piercing their heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, let's talk a little bit about the U.S., where most of us are now living, and I think most listening to us either on the phone or the internet are either in the U.S. or a Western nation. Um, We all have sort of a similar history for these past, oh, 40 or 50 years. Uh, Looking more specifically at the U.S., in the early 1960s, uh, God was systematically removed from, first of all, from the schoolroom where Bible reading was removed, prayer was banned, um, and finally the classroom became totally secularized. I can still remember uh, as a young boy going to public school we would have regular prayer in the public school. There were references made fairly often to the Ten Commandments, to the Bible, to Scripture. And so what you had was a a society that was basically, I'm going to call them God-literate, not to say everybody was a Christian, but there was a certain level of literacy concerning the reality of God, uh, a certain respect for the Bible being the, the Word of God, the revelation of God, whether or not you wanted to believe it, accept it, and obey it was another matter. But we, we basically still had Um, a godly framework in the culture. And all that began to stop in 1962, 1963, where prayer, Bible reading was removed from the classroom. And ever since then, the whole educational system from preschool all the way up through college, graduate school, has been completely secularized. And as you've heard me teaching quite a bit in recent weeks, the whole teaching of science in our school system has been completely hijacked by the lies and the myths of evolution. 
which has systematically removed God completely from the picture. To the point that now, in a country like the U.S., we have a whole generation that has come up through the ranks from kindergarten through high school and all the way through college, and frighteningly, many of them have never even been in a church. They've never even been exposed to even the suggestion that God is the creator of all things. From from kindergarten on, they're led to believe that evolution is equal to science. And anyone who dares doubt or question the whole teaching of molecules to man, random chance mutations gave rise to all the birds and fish and plants and animals that we see around us. No need for God because it all took place by the mechanisms of materialism and evolution. Uh, Many of these kids are now uh, CEOs of corporations. They're professors in the colleges and universities, and they're completely secularized. And I would like to suggest tonight that if we try using this Acts 2 model which Peter used to preach the gospel to Jews, they're going to look at you like, what planet are you from? And you start talking from the Bible, they're going to say, wait a minute, what's that book you're talking from? That's just a book of poetry. How do we know That book is any different from any other book. And by the way, you talk about God. Which God? Is he the Hindu God? Is he the Muslim God? Is he this God or that God or which God? And so we're now facing a whole different culture than the one that Peter was preaching to. And... Perhaps in the 1950s, the 1960s, uh, you could use this approach, and there were still um, large numbers of people who responded to that message. You look at some of the uh, old videos of Billy Graham preaching in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s throughout the United States, in other countries like England, Australia, uh, tremendous response to his preaching. Um, you don't see that response anymore in the U.S. You, you just don't see that kind of a response to this approach, this kind of a presentation of the gospel. And again, I'm not suggesting that we need to change the gospel the gospel is the, cha- the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus died for my sins. He was buried. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. But I would maintain that we're dealing more with a Greek culture that doesn't even know about God. God is unknown to them. They don't even know God as creator. They certainly don't know that the Bible is the inspired revelation of God, and it's the Word of God 
which we can follow to learn about God and to find out how to follow God. And so, just standing up in a crowd of people here in Washington, D.C., and saying, the prophet Joel has said thus and thus, and the prophet Isaiah says this, and Daniel chapter 9 predicts this, and we find in Matthew 24 that Jesus says this, they're probably going to look at you and say, what are you talking about? How do I even know what you're saying is true? And so I believe if we're really interested in presenting the gospel to this culture, we have some homework to do. We have to study, we have to sharpen our axe, we have to find out how to reach this culture that we are now living in. And I think part of that is understanding how the culture has been transformed. And trust me, um, I may be a little older than some of the folks listening in tonight, but I know what the culture in the U.S. was like in the 1950s, and I know what the culture is like in 2014. And it's like the difference between Mars and Venus, two totally different planets now. The, the, the culture has been completely transformed from what it was 50 years ago. And as I mentioned, we now live in a culture where from the earliest age, the little children are taught there's no God, you are the product of chance, random mutations, evolutionary processes, and the world view that develops from that teaching is, well, I'm just another animal. There is no God. I don't have to give an account for any of my actions, so I can lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery. I can be homosexual. I can fornicate. I can do whatever I feel like doing. And basically, I'm answerable to no one. Now, I may... Uh, get arrested by the police, and I may have to go to jail because there is some semblance of order in the civil government, but we see even that changing. Now, uh, in many places, it's becoming legal to smoke marijuana. They just passed a law yesterday in Washington, D.C. Marijuana is now decriminalized in D.C. Other cities, other states have already done that. For years, it's been legal to murder a baby in the womb in the name of abortion. Now, it's legal in 18 states for two men or two women to engage in what society calls same-sex marriage. I refuse to call it marriage because the word marriage doesn't mean two men or two women. And so, we're finding all sorts of bizarre things even being sanctioned by the law, by the government, and by the civil authorities. But the 
the transformation of the culture is accelerating. It's happening more and more rapidly and more and more dramatically to the point that a culture like that of the U.S. 50 years ago, uh, it's hardly recognizable in the year 2014. And we need to understand what has happened to the culture and how are we to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to this atheistic, agnostic, uh, materialistic culture uh, and the majority of the people may not even know about God or believe in God, let alone believe that the Bible is a book of any importance. So before we start quoting John 3.16 or Romans 6.23, we need to bring them to a place of understanding who God is, how he has revealed himself, and why we quote from the Bible. What makes the Bible different from any other book? And so, in Acts chapter 17, we have an interesting contrast to Acts 2. Remember, in Acts 2, we have Peter preaching to the Jews. In Acts 17, we have the Apostle Paul preaching to Greeks. And this is our whole premise from 1 Corinthians 1, that there is a distinct difference in the way the message of the gospel is preached, communicated, and received by a Jew as opposed to a Greek. And so I want us to look more carefully in Acts 17 at how Paul went about preaching the gospel to the Greeks. And I want us to note any differences in his approach versus that of Peter and his approach to the Jews. And again, I think you would see immediately Peter's approach just would not have worked here in Athens, Greece. If he had stood up and started quoting from Joel and Ezekiel and, you know, saying all these wonderful things from the Bible, they would have laughed him off the stage. They, they wouldn't have listened to a thing he was saying because of their culture and the condition that these Greeks were in. And we'll learn a little bit of that in some of these opening verses. And I'm beginning in Acts 17 from verse 16. Paul has now come to Athens, Greece. And starting in verse 16, it says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. First thing that we notice about Greece is it's completely given over to idolatry. We're going to come back to each one of these points. Idolatry, of course, 
is the worship of any god other than the true and the living god. An idol is anything that takes the place of God the creator. So they're worshiping idols. Verse 17. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Key word here we're going to come back and look at more is the word reasoned. No mention of Peter reasoning with the Jews in Jerusalem. He just proclaimed Christ and he quoted many scriptures to them. But when you're with Greeks, you need to know how to reason. He reasoned with them. And remember, we learned in 1 Corinthians 1, Jews are seeking for signs, Greeks are looking for wisdom. And here we see, in the very next verse, their whole culture centered around their pursuit of wisdom. And, of course, as I mentioned, the Greeks are famous for all of their philosophers. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, all these great philosophers. That's what made Greece the culture that it was. Verse 18, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, What does this babbler want to say? <laughs> Remember, we saw in 1 Corinthians 1 that the preaching of the gospel, the, the mention of God to Greeks, is what? Foolishness. So, Paul's speaking to them has already caused them to label him as a babbler. They prided themselves on their great wisdom so whatever Paul has been saying to them sounds like complete foolishness, babbling. What does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Notice again, a very different mindset from the one Peter was preaching to. The, the Jews, they understood the God that he was talking about was Elohim, Adonai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here, they have so many different gods, Paul may just be proclaiming another new God to be added to their list. He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Whatever Paul had said to them already sounded very strange to these people. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. And just a side note, if you were to go out and stand up on a bus or a metro train or get in the middle of a crowd, 
in, in a crowded street on the city and start preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to be baptized and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit with the speaking in tongues. I guarantee you, they're going to look at you like you're out of your mind. They're going to be saying, this man is talking strange things to us. They're not going to understand where you're coming from. They have no background, most of them. They have no basis to even process what you're saying to them. Verse 21, For all of the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. It's amazing. Here in the U.S., the intellectuals, they're quite ready to embrace any strange new religion or philosophy, whether it's kissing frogs or believing in extraterrestrials. People are, even professors in the universities, they're quite ready and willing to listen to and be open-minded to hear any kind of a strange thing except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? So they were open to all kinds of new philosophies. Verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Just remember that word, religious. We're going to come back and look at it. It, it may be translated in your Bible, superstitious, which is actually a better translation than religious. I perceive that you're very superstitious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, remember they have all kinds of gods, um, I can remember in high school having to study at length uh, about Greek mythology, all the different gods that the Greeks worshipped, Jupiter and Zeus and all these gods. They had a god for everything. All kinds of idols that they worshipped, except for the true god. And notice what Paul is saying to them. You're very religious. You're very superstitious. And as I was passing through, considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. You know, that, I think, describes to a T the Greek culture. And I'm suggesting it describes to a T the American culture. We are now living in a secular culture that does not know God. God is unknown to the unknown God. And if you're preaching to a culture that does not know God, you need to learn from Paul's approach here. And I think you're going to have limited success 
if you try to imitate Peter's model in Acts chapter 2, where he was preaching to a whole different audience, to Jews. Okay. To the unknown God, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I will proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Notice the very first thing. Paul has to go back to square one. He has to go all the way back to Genesis 1.1. We talked about this several weeks ago. The importance of the foundations that are found in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And Paul goes all the way back to Genesis 1-1 and proclaims to them God, the creator of everything. Now, we who are believers, and if you understand what I'm saying, we who are Jews, Jews know God is the creator. Uh, Well, we already know that. But Greeks don't. A Greek culture has to be taught even the very basic facts that God is the creator. Because all they've ever heard from their philosophers, from their professors, from kindergarten on up, is no God. We all evolved from some kind of ancestral creature. And by the way, not to get too far off the subject, But a lot of people think Charles Darwin was the first one to propose this whole idea of evolution. Absolutely not. The Greeks had extensive teachings on evolution. This was not something that Darwin originated. He simply put it into writing in a way that was far better than any other philosophers had ever done. And in the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s, his myth of evolution took off like wildfire. But it certainly wasn't a brand new doctrine that Darwin invented. Uh, The Greeks had all of these teachings about evolution. So Paul had to first proclaim to them God who made the world and everything in it. And we're going to come back to this, but here again, if we understand the culture that we're in, in a country like the U.S., where the majority of the people no longer believe in creation, they no longer believe in a creator God, they have bought the lives and the myth of evolution, hook, line, and sinker. And if you have any doubts about this, look at any public school science book. Look at any college science book, biology book, geology book. They all present evolution as the facts of science. And many of them deliberately lie. 
They deliberately mislead. They deliberately misrepresent scientific facts to promote their religion. And that's what it is. It's a religion of atheism and evolution. So if we understand that's where the culture is at now, we have to be prepared to do what Paul did. Proclaim to them God who made everything. And as I was teaching a few weeks ago, if Genesis 1-1 isn't true, then you can't believe anything else in the Bible. If God is not the creator of heaven and earth, how can I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? So this is not some secondary doctrine. It's a very important truth. And you may not be a scientist, but every one of us must be able to give a defense of the truth that God created everything. It didn't randomly take place over billions of years by chance events. So, he first proclaims God the creator of everything, and because he's the creator, notice in verse 24, the next part is logical. If he made the world and everything in it, then he's the Lord of heaven and earth. If God didn't make anything, then he's not Lord of anything. He has no authority over anything. And that's really the, the root of the whole evolutionary doctrine. They don't want to submit to the authority of God. They don't want him to be their Lord so they conveniently invented this whole fairy tale that leaves God out as the explanation of the origin of the universe and where everything came from. So, he proclaims God the creator, and because of that, he has absolute authority as creator and owner of his creation to be the Lord of it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And then he goes on and says, He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything. And then he gives another very important point, and this also goes right back to Genesis chapter 1. God is not only the creator of the world, he's the author of life. You know, one of the biggest problems for the evolutionists to explain is where did life come from? They cannot give an answer to that. They've invented all kinds of wild fairy tales, but none of them gives a, a reasonable explanation for the origin of life. So Paul now goes a step further. Not only is God creator, he is the author and the originator of all life. Notice his words in verse 25. Since he gives all life, breath, and all things. We're going to come back to that one also. So God is the creator. God is the Lord. God is the author of life. 
verse 26. Here's another important point that traces all the way back to Genesis. And he has made from one, literally from one man, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. We're going to look at this in some more detail, but again, he's appealing to Genesis chapter 1 that God made one man, Adam, and from that one man came forth the whole human race. Not races, one race, one blood, and from that one blood, from that one man, he gave rise to every nation on the face of the earth. And not only is that a reference directly to Genesis 1, I believe it's an indirect reference to Genesis 11, where God scattered the human race to the four corners of the earth. He confused their languages, and he scattered them to the different countries, and it's implied in this next part of verse 26, he determined not only their pre-appointed times, but the boundaries of their dwellings. Seems to suggest that he predetermined these different people groups that arose from Adam that settled in the different nations and the different continents. Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So Paul has now reasoned with them that the unknown God can be known. He hasn't quoted any scriptures yet. He's referring to things found in the scriptures, but he's not quoting Bible verses. He's just teaching them basic facts. Number one, God is the creator. Number two, because of that, he's the Lord of everything. Number three, he's the author of life. He, he explained to them the origin of all life. It came from this God. And he then explains where the human race came from and even why we have all these different people groups. And they all arose from this one ancestor. He doesn't mention Adam by name, but he's obviously referring to the Genesis 1 account of the origin of man. And here again, preaching to an audience of secular people in America, most of them believe that they came from monkeys and apes. They do not believe that we're all derived from one human ancestor. They believe in different races of people 
that evolved separately in different parts of the world. So Paul is definitely refuting that whole lie about the origin of the human race. From one blood, every nation of men came about. Now, he starts to shift the emphasis of his message, starting in verse 17, where he suggests that these Greeks, along with any other human being, need to start seeking the Lord, so that they should seek the Lord, in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Again, he's not giving direct Bible quotes, but he may have had in mind scriptures such as the one that we find in Jeremiah or Isaiah and other places. If you seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me. Well, Paul says you should start seeking for the Lord. Even though initially it's like a blind man groping in the darkness in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. Basically what he's saying is this unknown God, I'm here to tell you, you can find him. He's revealed himself and there's a way if you're willing to seek for him, there's a way to find him. And he's really not that unknown. He's really not that far from each one of us. Verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, For we are his, we are also his offspring. You know, this fascinates me. Paul has not given one Bible quote but he's quoting from Greek literature. (laughs) He's quoting from one of their own poets. We are God's offspring. Now, in verse 29, he follows up on that thought from their own Greek poet. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. And again, remember the whole city was given over to idols and idolatry. One way of understanding an idol, it's anything that we've made. It's anything that we've created. That may mean a golden statue, or it may mean uh, a philosophy or a religion, like evolution. Evolution's an idol. It's something of man's devising. And I would submit to you that many, many millions of people are now worshiping at the altar of that false god of evolution. It's one of the biggest idols over this whole culture now. 
the idol of evolution. Then in verse 30, remember, the Greeks are ignorant. They don't know God. They've even inscribed on one of their altars to the unknown God. And Paul confirms the fact that they've been ignorant up until now. And he doesn't use the word, but he's implying that God is a very merciful God. Because in verse 30 he says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. Um, let me read to you a couple of other translations on that verse. Um, the Amplified Bible says, Such ages of ignorance God ignored and allowed to pass unnoticed, but now He charges all people everywhere to repent. The original King James says, The times of this ignorance God winked at. <laughs> That's an interesting translation. And it, it literally means to overlook or to wink, not to really pay too much attention at what is being seen. So in other words, coming back to verse 30, God saw their ignorance, but up until now, he was basically giving them a pass, we would say, in in American English. He looked the other way. He kind of overlooked all of their idolatry, all of their ignorance about him or who he is. But, something has now changed. They've now heard the word of God. They've now been listening to Paul's discourse They've heard him reasoning with them from the scriptures that God is the creator. God is the originator of life. God is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he's now inviting mankind to seek him, to find him, and to know him. And reading verse 30 again, Notice, up until now, God has been lenient. God has winked at your ignorance. God has looked the other way. But something has now changed. Now, God is commanding something. Now, remember, he explained to them earlier that this God who made the heaven and the earth he is rightfully Lord of all. Well, only the Lord can command all men. Um, if you don't have any authority, you can't command people to do anything. So implied here again is this God that Paul is now proclaiming to them. In the past, he overlooked their sins and their ignorance but he's now saying something to them. He has the authority to speak to them, and more specifically, 
to give them a command. Now God commands all men everywhere, that pretty well covers all the bases, all men everywhere to repent. He commands all men everywhere to repent. Next verse begins with a key word, because. Here's the reason why he's commanding all men everywhere to repent. Remember, because he's Lord, he has every right to do whatever he wants with his creation, and he has already decreed a day of judgment. So, because he's Lord, and because he's decreed that day, he's commanding all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, capital M, the man, Jesus Christ, whom he has ordained. How do we know Jesus is the man he has ordained? Now he's getting into the meat of the gospel. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now let's stop for a minute. He first of all proclaimed God the Creator. He then explained, because of that, God is the Lord. He is the source of all life. All mankind owes its existence to this Creator God, and therefore every man, woman, and child, all men everywhere, are answerable and accountable to this God. And because there is coming a day of judgment when he will judge every human being, therefore he's now commanding all men everywhere to repent. And the proof that all of this is going to happen is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the final proof that Paul gives that this day of judgment will take place by the man whom God has ordained, the man, Christ Jesus, and he has given assurance that that man will be the judge of all because he was raised from the dead. Now, notice the difference in the response to Paul's preaching to the Greeks and Peter's preaching to the Jews. 3,000 people gladly repented, took baptism, and got saved after Peter's sermon. Notice what happens here in verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. Huh. Very different. It doesn't say they were 
pricked in their hearts. It doesn't say they came under conviction of the Holy Spirit. They didn't come running to Paul asking, what must we do to be saved? Some of them mocked, and some of them said, "Uh, we'll hear some more about this later. That's it. Verse 33, so Paul departed from among them. It doesn't sound like he was very successful. And you know what? I think we're not going to feel very successful preaching to our Greek culture a lot of times either. And if you follow this further, in verse 34, it says, However, some men, more literally, a few men, joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. (laughs) That's a little different from getting 3,000 new members for your church. And i got to be honest with you. I'm going to be very honest with you. Trying to preach the gospel now in the United States can be very discouraging. I've been preaching the gospel for 40 years, and it isn't like it used to be 30, 40 years ago. When I preached 30, 40 years ago, there was a very different response. And now it's very hard. It's very difficult. I'm not saying the gospel has lost its power. We're not to be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to Jews and to Greeks. But understand, the Greek culture, the Greek mindset that we now find ourselves immersed in is very, very different from the culture Peter was preaching to in Jerusalem. Now, let's go back and just look at a couple of things here, and I think I'm going to do a part two for this message next week, because I think it's it's very uh, appropriate for where we're at right now in our ministry, in what our churches are, are trying to do. God has called us to be salt, to be light, to preach Christ to this generation. And I'm not going to sugarcoat this. It's a great challenge. We're we're preaching to a very difficult audience. And I think we need to study carefully this model in Acts 17 to see what wisdom God might give us to help us in knowing how to be able to present the gospel effectively to this atheistic, agnostic, secularized culture. First of all, going back to the start of this whole passage, understand our culture is completely given over to idolatry. 
all kinds of things have taken the place of God. Philosophies, intellectualism, I mentioned a big one that's behind a lot of this, evolution. We've taken God completely out of the equation. And if you think this thing through, I think you can understand the kinds of behaviors that are becoming more and more, quote, normal in our society, where we see school shootings, uh, terrorism, uh, random murders and, and multiple gruesome murders for no reason at all. Well, if you think about it, it really makes sense. We're teaching our kids from kindergarten, there's no God. You just came about over billions of years by molecules randomly bumping into each other in the ocean. They turned into worms. Worms turned into fish. The fish became frogs. The frogs became monkeys. And finally, the monkeys became people. And again, there's no God. There's no Lord. There's no judgment. So you don't have to give an account to anybody for anything. No Ten Commandments. There's no law. You can do whatever makes you feel good. And so... Basically, your life has no reason, no purpose whatsoever. And any honest evolutionist will have to admit there's no purpose to anything. There's really no purpose for the whole universe. There's no reason for the earth being here. There's no reason for all the plants and animals. There's certainly no reason for the human race being here. We're going to live. We're going to die. And we're not going to have any memory of what we did or what we wrote or what we accomplished. And basically, it's all completely, completely futile, vain, and purposeless. So if you teach that to children from kindergarten up, by the time they're in high school, it makes good sense that if they're not feeling very happy about their life, then why not go kill 20 or 30 people and then kill myself? Because my life has no meaning, no purpose, and I don't have to face a god afterwards. And by and large, this helps us to understand the kind of culture we're called to present the gospel to. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in the God that you and I know from Genesis 1 Verse 1. And so, the very first thing we have to be prepared to do is, if you go to Acts 17, verse 17 again for a minute, we, we mentioned this, Paul reasoned with them. He reasoned with them. We have to understand the, the mindset, the 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 audience that we're talking to. Many of these people are highly educated. They have uh, extensive education, intellectual abilities. They've learned all kinds of philosophies, just like what they had in the Greek culture. And 
I'm not saying we need to go study all of these philosophies and evolution and all that, but we need to understand how to reason with the people in our culture. And next time when we continue with this, we're going to look much more at what Paul told them in verses 22 and 23, and this is where I'm going to stop tonight. He told them, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Very religious. You know, actually, uh, the American culture is becoming more and more spiritual. People are very much aware of spiritual realities. Unfortunately, they're looking in all the wrong places. They're looking at all the wrong religions. But we've become a very religious society. The problem is, verse 23, God is unknown. And Paul told them, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the God whom you worship without knowing him I will proclaim to you. And we're going to pick it up right here next time, and we're going to talk in more detail about just how do we proclaim God to a a secular culture like this. Uh, How do we even begin talking to an audience that they don't even know about Genesis. They may not even know what the Bible is or what the Bible says, let alone how can we know that the Bible has any authority to speak to my life. And really what we're going to look at in more detail next week is this whole area of apologetics. How do we reason with secular atheistic people? How do we bring them to a place of understanding that the Bible is the Word of God and that the God of the Bible has revealed himself with many infallible proofs that he is both the creator of the universe and the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead to prove to the world that he is both Savior, Lord, and Judge and Coming King. So we'll stop there for tonight and continue this next time.